which you can find on page 1143 in the Church Bibles. Last time I was here, we looked at the first half of this chapter, and today we're going to begin our reading in verse 35 and read through to the end of 1 Corinthians 15. God's Word, beginning in verse 35. But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, this is Genesis 2-7, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust, as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Amen. 
congregation, the latest statistics tell us that of 100 people, exactly 100 will die. Now, of course, we all know that in our heads, but how many of us have really come to terms with that reality? The reality that death can come at any time and extinguish us. Any place, any time, it comes closer every day. How many of us have reflected deeply on death and its finality? That our lives, as we know it, will end just like that. That death will dissolve everything. Our achievements, our accomplishments, our riches, our reputation, our relationships, gone in an instant. In times past, people used to place skulls or other objects on their desks as what they called memento mori. Latin for, remember you must die. It was a constant reminder to them that death lies around the corner. That every single human being on this planet and in this sanctuary must die. We must all lie among the gravestones at some point. But this morning, we're going to see what God has done to deal with this universal problem of death. A problem that even Christians do not escape at first. Last time I was here, we saw that Christ was the first to be raised from the dead. He was called, do you remember, the first fruits of the dead. And following him at his coming, all his people will be the harvest of resurrection on that last day. Since Christ has been resurrected, Paul said, so too will his people be resurrected as well. It's a sure and done deal, which we await with hope and certainty. Well, today, we're going to be taken deeper into the future resurrection. And this is fitting. We've just come through Easter. It is fitting to think about the resurrection. And Paul asks, what kind of body will we have? What will happen on that last day? What will things be like? And we're going to see, brothers and sisters, that the Lord Jesus, whom we serve now, will give us victory over death. He'll give us victory over death. How? By raising us with a transformed, imperishable body. A transformed, imperishable body. Let's consider three things this morning. Our future body, our future resurrection, sorry, our future victory, and our present labor. So first, our future body. Remember that Paul has been seeking to persuade these Corinthians about the future bodily resurrection of the dead, which they deny for some strange reason. For them, it didn't make sense. They had doubts. They had objections. How could the dead possibly be raised again? What kind of body will it be then if we've disintegrated in the grave only to be raised again? And Paul answers them by pointing to the natural world. Did you notice that? He points to nature. 
And he says, even nature instructs us about resurrection. As Martin Luther put it, our Lord has written the promise of resurrection, not in books alone, but in every leaf in springtime. And we're seeing that, aren't we? Well, Paul's first example from nature is the sowing of a seed. When you sow a seed in the ground, you do so in the hope that it will grow, it will it'll sprout into something to be harvested in due time. Once it's in the ground, that naked seed or that bare kernel undergoes a transformation. It's clothed, we could say, with a new body. It's the same seed, for sure, but it's a new form. It's transformed, and it's drastically changed because it comes to full maturity with growth. And Paul says this teaches us from the natural world about resurrection. Because when a person dies, the body is placed in the ground like a seed. And at the moment of resurrection, when that trumpet calls, that body will be raised, a glorious, transformed body. What comes out will completely surpass what went in. But it will still be the same body, the same person, the same identity, and yet come to full maturity and full glory in Christ. And this will happen, says Paul, by the supernatural act of God. Now, I don't know much about farming, but I do know that when it comes to seeds and crops, you can correct me on this, there's something called a germination cycle. And it's the natural process of a plant. That's what we say, right? It's a natural process. But that phrase, I submit to you, natural process, can be misleading because it sounds as though the plant goes through the cycle of germination on its own, apart from divine guidance. But is that the case? Does anything happen in this world, planets to seeds, without the guidance and providence of God? No, it is God who is at work in every seed planted in the ground. As verse 38 tells us in our passage, God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. He gives it a body. And it's the same with the resurrection body. This is not a natural process that we're talking about. It is a gracious, supernatural act of God. Every believer's body will be raised by God and his power. Even bodies that have been mangled or crushed or burned to ash. They too will be raised bodily by a miraculous act of God. In the Apostles' Creed, what do we confess? I believe in the resurrection of the body. And in the original Latin, in which that creed was written, it actually said the resurrection of the flesh. I like that. The resurrection of the flesh. Don't spiritualize this, brothers and sisters. 
Yes, there is a spiritual element to our being united with Christ and raised with him in the heavenly places. But here we are talking about a physical, material, bodily resurrection of the dead. In 2 Timothy 2.18, Paul says there were false teachers at that time saying, the resurrection of the dead has already happened. What are they saying? They're saying, well, it's a spiritual thing. We're not literally going to be raised from the grave. It's spiritual. We're new people in Christ right now. We're resurrected. But no, that does not go near as far enough. We're talking about human flesh being reconstituted in a physical, material, bodily resurrection which which will be nothing short of a supernatural act of the living God. His divine power at work in the face of death. Now the second example from the natural world is that of the heavenly bodies. That is, the sun, moon, and stars. Paul says in verse 41, There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. And then he says, So is it with the resurrection of the dead. There's an analogy there. We learn from nature in this way. Just as the sun outshines the moon, we know this, just as one star outshines another star, so too our future resurrected body will outshine our current body in glory and splendor. Is that not something to look forward to? Greater glory, greater splendor. The body that's placed in the ground is perishable. It goes down in dishonor, in weakness, as a natural decaying body. This is why we grieve at funerals. But it will be raised imperishable. Raised in glory, in power, as, says Paul, a spiritual body. Now that raises questions. Spiritual body. What does it mean to say we will each have a spiritual body? When we hear spiritual, we're likely going to think of something angelic, ghost-like, wispy, kind of transparent, uh, mist-like, glowing. You can put your hand through your head kind of thing. Spiritual bodies. But that's not what Paul has in mind. Paul is not saying here that our bodies in the future will be immaterial like spirits or like souls or a ghost. He's using the word spiritual, we could say, with a capital S. I mean, in the Greek, there's no capitals to do with the Holy Spirit even. But this is capital S spiritual in the sense of the Holy Spirit. It means it's of the Holy Spirit. This is a body animated by the power of the Spirit of God. It will be a physical, touchable, visible body that has been lifted up. 
by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul means. I mean, notice the contrast. It's not between the physical and the spiritual, but the natural and the spiritual. We tend to think of the Holy Spirit as the one who works kind of privately inside of us. And that's true. He changes and softens the heart. He gives us conviction of sin. He regenerates us. He sanctifies our inward being, makes us experience God's presence through his indwelling. These are all interior things. But there's also an exterior dimension to the Spirit's work. He doesn't just work inside us, but also on the outside. Remember, Romans 8 says, it was the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. And he's the one who will also raise us, giving resurrection life to our mortal bodies. The Holy Spirit at work in us. Back in verse 21, Paul said that death has come through Adam, and therefore in Adam all die. But resurrection life has come through Jesus. Jesus, the second Adam. As our song put it earlier, the better Adam, or the last Adam. And Paul expands on that here in verse 45. Listen to what he says. The first man, Adam, became a living being. That's the creation account. But the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. And again, when it says Jesus became a life-giving spirit, it's best to read the word spirit there with a capital S because it's talking about the Holy Spirit and how he raised Jesus. I mean, Jesus was not a ghost floating around at his resurrection. They touched him. He ate with the disciples. So this is saying that Jesus, through his resurrection, was so transformed by the Holy Spirit's power, so glorified, That Jesus fully received the Spirit and now works in concert with the Spirit. He and the Spirit are one in the sense that their work is so united and joined together. We're not talking about the Trinity. There are three persons in the Trinity. But the Son and the Spirit now work in such union, such united purpose in raising us from the dead. In other words, the resurrected Christ and the resurrecting Spirit work in perfect harmony for the good of his people. Do you remember back in chapter 13, the love chapter? Paul said, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part but then I shall know fully. He was talking about the present age, now, versus the age to come, then. You see that contrast throughout this letter. Well, at the, well the point here is that the, there's a body that's fit for the present age, now, the natural body. The body that's fit for the descendants of Adam, marked by guilt and death. Disease, 
deterioration, marked by weakness, fragility, vulnerability. But through the second Adam, through Jesus Christ, the last Adam, we are going to have bodies fit for the age to come. Indestructible, immortal bodies marked by glory. So the Adam-like natural body will give way to a Christ-like glorified spiritual body that lasts forever. And so Paul says, we bear currently the image of the man of dust, of Adam, our forefather. But soon we will bear the image of the man of heaven, even the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will become Christ-like, quite literally, and that we too will have resurrection glory by the power of the Spirit. So what does this mean for us then, congregation? Well, the Bible's teaching on the bodily resurrection shows us the value of the human body. We miss that sometimes. But our bodies have value. The last five to ten years have seen a huge surge in transgender interest and activism. Uh, We know about this. Um, Irreversible surgeries being done on people, including children and teenagers. The body is seen increasingly in our culture as something to be brought in line with who I really am inside. But brothers and sisters, what does Scripture tell us? We are our bodies. Just as much as we are our souls. Historically, human beings have thought of or have been thought of in basically three ways. First, some have said a human being is basically a soul. We are essentially souls housed temporarily in a body. You know, we're imprisoned in the body, soon to be released at death. Second, others have said the human being is basically a body without a soul. And most atheists believe this, that we're a cluster of atoms and cells, and there's no such thing as a soul. But third, the Christian understanding of the human being is neither of these things. But it's that we are both body and soul. God created us to be body and soul. And the Heidelberg Catechism, question answer one, tells us, doesn't it, that Jesus redeems us both body and soul. God values both, which means our salvation will not just be the salvation of our souls floating around in heaven, but it will also be the salvation of our mortal bodies. There will be a bodily resurrection, which means our bodies are good. They are redeemable. Matter, materiality, physicality is not evil, but it is good, created by God. 
And this is why we ought to take care of our bodies even now. Watching what we put into our bodies, how we treat our bodies, what we do with our bodies, how we think about our bodies. The body is not just a shell that we'll take off later. Our body is not the orange peels that you throw away after eating the pulp. It's not a prison. It's us. You are your body as much as you are your soul. We are our bodies and they matter. And this is why the Christian church has traditionally sought to honor and respect the body at death by burying it in the ground. Now, this is not to say cremation is sinful or evil, not at all, but the tradition of the Christian church has always preferred to bury it. Why? It's a symbolic act of sowing the body in the ground like a seed in the sure hope and expectation that the body will be raised at the time of harvest. And to say that the body will be raised is to say that we will have victory over death, which brings us to our second point, our future victory. Our future victory. Our passage tells us that in order to enter the kingdom of God, our bodies will need to be changed. And this change will happen at an instant, in the twinkling of an eye, when Christ comes again for his people, descending from heaven in a physical, bodily return at the sound of the last trumpet. Verse 52, For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. When a believer dies... The Bible says the body remains in the ground temporarily, whereas the soul goes immediately to heaven to be with Christ our Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.8, if we're away from the body, we're at home with the Lord. But since our body, like I just said, is us, is an essential part of who and what we are, we are incomplete even when our soul enjoys fellowship with Christ in heaven. We could even say, provocatively, our redemption is incomplete. Part of us remains bound up by death in the ground. And so we await that last day, when death will be defeated and broken, the bonds will be broken, our body too will be raised imperishable, and reunited with our souls so that we can be made fit for eternal life. You know, if you're lifting off into space as an astronaut, you don't wear your swimsuit. You wear your spacesuit. Because it fits the place you're going to. Well, if you're going to enter the new heavens and the new earth, the future dwelling place of all God's people in God's presence, then you're going to need to wear something fitting. You're going to need a resurrection suit. And brothers and sisters, the promise is that God will clothe you with immortality. 
He will clothe you, lavish you with a perfect, imperishable body fit for eternal life and for glorious fellowship with God and his people. Verse 54 tells us that when all that happens, when we've been clothed with immortality, then we will know that death has been swallowed up in victory. I don't know if you've thought about this before, but as Christians, we ought to hate death. We are called to love many things, even our enemies, but not death. Death is unnatural. Death is a disruption to God's good created order. Death is an intruder that has entered the world because of sin, Romans 5. And the Bible calls death an enemy. He's your enemy and God's enemy. Death is that terrifying, inescapable enemy, that tyrant who rules over the present age. No one escapes from death. We can prolong it, but it's never prevented. No one is too important for death or too insignificant to get past it. Death is that tragic reminder, brothers and sisters, that we are sinners and rebels against our God, our Creator. Death is the wages of sin, says Paul. As it says in verse 56 here, the sting of death is sin. It's sin that gives death that stinger. And the power of sin is the law. And so congregation, get honest with this reality. Get honest with this reality. That you have sinned against God. And that because of that, the wages of your sin is death. Death has a rightful claim upon every single one of us. But I say that because you'll only appreciate the magnitude of Christ's victory over death if you understand the magnitude of this enemy he's defeated. I mean, has Christ saved you from a puddle or a tsunami? That's what I'm talking about. Has Christ defeated a pipsqueak or the last enemy of humankind? One author writes, If the gospel seems irrelevant to our daily lives, that is, not our, that is our fault, not the gospel's fault. For if death is not a daily reality, then Christ's triumph over death is neither daily nor real. Worship and proclamation and even faith itself take on a dreamlike, unreal air. And Jesus is reduced to something like a long-term insurance policy, filed and forgotten, whereas he could be our necessary ally, an immediate continuing friend, the holy destroyer of death and the devil, and my own beautiful Savior. What is he to you? 
the destroyer of death and your beautiful saviour, or the long-term insurance policy filed and forgotten. Remember death so that you remember Christ's victory over death. Jesus Christ has plunged headfirst into death and he has come out the other side victorious. Jesus had no sin of his own to pay for. Remember that. If death is the wages of sin, Jesus did not, to, did not have to pay a single cent. And yet, he tasted death for us so that we could live forevermore. 2 Timothy 1.10 says, I love this, Jesus abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. It's the death of death through the death of Christ. The abolition of death, the destruction of death through our victor, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so we say, oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? Jesus has overpowered and defeated death. He has slain it by being slain on the cross. He has overcome it by by becoming overcome by sinful men. He has plucked the stinger of death by being stung himself. On your behalf, for you, his church, our Savior has disarmed death of its finality and of its sting. And when he returns, those remaining effects of death will be reversed through this mighty resurrection. He has done this for you. God has sent his son to go headfirst into death for you. To triumph over it for you. And so thanks be to God, says Paul, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Lastly then, in light of all this, Let's briefly consider our third and final point, our present labor. We've talked about our future body and the future victory over death. What about the present labor and our present efforts? We'll close with this. In verse 58, Paul gives this exhortation to the church and to us. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of of the Lord. Why? Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now, last time we became familiar with that phrase, in vain. Do you remember? Paul said that if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our faith is futile and everything you've lived for is in vain. We're to be pitied if Christ has not been raised. We're fools on this earth. But since Christ has been raised, and since you too will be raised with him on the last day, your work for the Lord is not in vain. Brothers and sisters, we later on in our lives may retire from our careers, 
but we never retire from our work for the Lord. What I mean is later in life, it may look different, certainly, but we never finish loving and serving Christ and his people in our own way. And there are times, aren't there, in the church and serving Christ in our daily lives when the things you're doing for the Lord don't seem to be making much of a difference. The world certainly doesn't care, and it seems to be a thankless task in the church sometimes. Is it all in vain? Serving this small church in a country, in a big world. Is it all in vain? That's temptation, is it not? But remember that your labor in the Lord has meaning. It has significance. Not because of the size or the numbers involved, but because of who you're serving. It's the work you do as you approach that future day of glorious resurrection, when you will see Christ whom you serve face to face. And on that day, what you've done for him and for his church will matter. It's not about the numbers. It's not about the fruit necessarily, because God gives the fruit, just as he gives to the seed its body. But for us, it remains to be faithful. We leave fruitfulness to the Lord, but faithfulness is something we carry on with in the present. And so let that hope of future resurrection, future commendation from the Lord Jesus Christ, leak into the present so that it can fuel your work for the Lord here now. Hold firmly to the gospel of Christ with an unwavering, immovable faith, as the apostle exhorts us. And remember, in the present age, there is mourning, there is weakness, there is vulnerability, there are fears and troubles, but may it be a deep comfort to you that when Christ returns, all believers who are united to him will rise with immortal, physical, imperishable bodies, with no more pain, no more grief, no more tears, no more caskets or gravestones, just unmitigated joy and bliss in the presence of God. On that day, There will be but one gravestone among all believers, and it will say, rest in peace, here lies death. The last enemy, the great tyrant. And on that day, not a single person will mourn the death of death. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for what you have done to deal with death, our great enemy. We thank you for the victory that you have given us through our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you comfort us by these truths we've heard? 
Would you fuel our work for the Lord in the present and help us to give ourselves fully to serving Christ and knowing him. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.